So a lot of people have an inaccurate formula with discipline that they have to force feed themselves discipline and make themselves be disciplined. And then that'll produce the consistency and the, the systems and the processes and all they need for all of all the, the uh, trappings of discipline. But it doesn't work that way. What actually works is that you have to put a structure in place that allows discipline to result from it. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left. What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high-performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today, tighten those shoelaces and get ready for a slam dunk of inspiration. Our guest isn't just shooting for the stars, he's already landed on a whole new galaxy of success. From dominating the basketball court to conquering the digital realm, his journey reads like a highlight reel of resilience and reinvention. His journey from the end of the bench to a nine-year professional basketball career is a testament to his unwavering belief in his own potential. He is the CEO and founder of Work On Your Game, a former D3 college basketball walk-on, a four-times TEDx speaker, author of 33 books, and has appeared in national campaigns for Nike, Finish Line, Wendy's, Gatorade, Buick, Wilson Sports, and a whole lot more. From conquering the courts in eight different countries to revolutionizing the way we approach mindset, strategy, and systems in business, his story is nothing short of an awe-inspiring. So prepare to be schooled in more ways than one because he's taken us from the hardwood to the headlines. Dre Baldwin. Dre, welcome to the show. Excited to be here, Craig. Hopefully, I can live up to that introduction. <laughs> Too easy. <laughs> hey, now you're based in Miami right now, but where did you grow up? And what was the big dream when you were running around the playgrounds and not shooting hoops? I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, born and raised. So I moved to Miami as an adult. And uh, the big dream there really wasn't a big dream. It was just I knew I wanted to be known. I knew I wanted to be out there. I wanted to do something that was out of the ordinary, but I couldn't have I couldn't have articulated it in that way back then. It was just when I got into sports, I knew I wanted to be a, I wanted to be in sports. I wanted to be an athlete. So I tried a couple of sports, a little bit of baseball, a little bit of football, settled on basketball. And that's where I ended up playing basketball. Yeah. So what, I guess you said it was a dream. Yeah, nice. And, and what was it about basketball that really captured your heart? Um, I wouldn't even say that it captured my heart. I think it was just I knew I wanted to make it in sports, right? So it was just figuring out what sport was it going to be. So I tried a couple, and when I got to basketball, 
I was already age 14, which is pretty late if you're trying to set yourself up to do something, right? You want to play in college, let alone you want to play pro. So basketball was kind of the last uh, resort try. And it, the good thing about basketball is easy to practice it. You can practice basketball by yourself. So mm. I remember as a kid, I went to tennis camp once. So you can't, it's hard to practice tennis by yourself because nobody hit the ball back to you, right? Yeah. And then football, you need people. Baseball, you kind of need people. And those weren't that popular in my neighborhood, those three sports. Most people just played basketball. The good thing about basketball is you can practice and play all day with one person. All you need is the ball and the court. You can practice all day. You don't even need equipment. So it doesn't cost any money to invest in basketball. You can just go to the court and practice. So once I got on that court and I, I didn't have anybody teaching me or showing me how to play. And it's not like I was pulling up YouTube videos because this is before YouTube existed. So I just had to keep going to the court and just keep practicing and seeing if I could figure it out. And luckily it worked. I just kept going to the court and practicing by myself to see if I could figure out how to make something happen out there. And you no, know, luckily I was able to do that over it took several years. It didn't happen as quickly as I'm saying it, but it took some time, but I figured it out. Was it one of those sports that came to you naturally? Like when you kind of started playing, did people go, Hey, well, you're a basketball player. You're good. Like, was that kind of the start of it or did you really have to work hard at it? No, absolutely not. It was not natural. So no, I was not naturally good at basketball when I first started. I was bad. I couldn't play at all. So I couldn't, didn't know how to dribble, couldn't shoot, couldn't, didn't know how to do anything on the basketball court when I first started. The thing is that because I started late, I was, I guess you could say a late bloomer. So as I kept practicing, I did get better in some skill and some skills did develop, some talent did emerge, but it took some time. And because I had started so late, many kids by the time that I was, let's say, 16 or 17 years of age, when I started to feel like I was I could see some semblance of ability show up. Most kids by that age had already decided that they're not going to play basketball because they hadn't developed. They hadn't shown enough ability. But I had just started a couple of years earlier. So I stuck with it. So to most of them, I was the fool because I was you know, at this advanced age still trying to get better and i didn't have any tangible results by that point because usually again if you're going to go somewhere in a sport by age 16 or 17 you're pretty much identified as somebody right i was still a nobody so many of the kids in my neighborhood are looking at me like oh why are you still playing you're at this age you haven't done anything all the other kids your age who are going somewhere we can tell they're the guys you're not one of the guys so why are you still doing it so luckily craig i was uh, foolish enough uh, to keep trying so I absolutely answer your question. I absolutely was not a natural at basketball. But by the time my talent started to emerge, by the time I got to about college, about my freshman year, it seemed natural. So people who didn't know me before that looked at me and said, oh, this guy's always had talent. Uh, they didn't know the half of the story. Mm. So you've got that that real deep drive going on. But as you're going, mm. you know, you're seeing people drop out. You're, you can see yourself progressing. Was that giving you more confidence each year to go, hey, you know no, what? Absolutely. I can be yeah, something. Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, I didn't make the high school team until I was a senior. And even that year, I didn't do anything. I sat on the bench. So I scored two points per game as a high school senior. And I always tell people, you score two points per game in hockey or soccer, you make the Hall of Fame, right? <laughs> you score two points per game in basketball, you're nothing. So <laughs> in basketball, you know, I by the time I graduated high school, it's not like anybody was looking at me like, damn, Jerry, I can see your hard work paid off. Nobody was saying that. Because I was just sitting in the bench doing nothing. But then when I got to college, you know, it was a whole new environment. So everybody I met in college, none of them knew me before college. So they saw me and they figured that this guy must have always been good. But that was not the case. 
again, I just happened to hit my development stride around that time. So also at that time, to answer your question here, a lot of my peers didn't go on to play basketball in college. Many of them didn't even go on to go to college, period. So over time, as I kept going between those ages of about 16 to about my early 20s, many of my peers who I started out with, and they were way better than me when I first started, many of them just slowly started to drop off. I just kept going. But I never had any – it never crossed my mind I was going to stop. It was just I'm just going to keep going. Let's just see who goes further. But I never – I wasn't looking at them like, well, he's going to quit here. He's going to stop here. I wasn't looking at it that way. I was looking at it as I'm going to keep getting better. And eventually, hey, maybe I'll run into these guys again and I'll win the next one. If I didn't win the last one, I'll win the next one. Mm, I like that. You know, it's – it's in some ways people kind of look at life and going, oh, there must be some special recipe to it. But realistically, it, there's a simple set of ingredients that no matter what you're cooking, no matter what you're making, kind of need to be there, right? And when it comes to success as an athlete or success in mm-hmm. the business world, there are like fundamentals that belong in there. But before we kind of dive right. into what you feel those are, was there a bit of a mentor or a role model in those forming years through, uh, you know, through middle school, high school, even into college that really stands out for you as someone that kind of changed the game for you? No, there wasn't. I, I did not have that person who was a mentor for me. I, when people ask me about that, as far as sports, what was the, if I had to give credit to any person, I would have to give credit to my parents who were not athletes. They are not I'm six feet, four inches tall, which is about 193 centimeters. My parents are not even six feet tall. All right. So either one of them. So my mother and father, I'm probably about six, seven inches taller than both of them. They were not athletes, but they did show up. They did show up to work every day. They went to their jobs every day, even when they didn't have cars and they had to take public transportation. So I just took the discipline that I saw displayed from my parents and I applied that to sports and luckily it worked out. But as far as anyone taking me under their wing, that's something that I didn't have. So I had to kind of self-teach myself. And then once I became somebody in sports, what I did was I started basically turn around and paying it forward to the next generation. But that also helped me because it helped me build a name up online, which I'm sure we'll, we'll probably touch on that. Mm. You know, you, you know, you're going through that time where, you know, you're still developing your skills. You got a lot of players around you. Um, you know, you're probably having people tell you you're not good enough or, or why are you still doing this? You know, what kept you going during that time where, you know, maybe, you're, you know, you're sitting on the bench, you're not quite making the team, uh, you've still got this dream and, you know, you, you probably had a lot of doubters, you know, people around you that were doubting you. How were you coping with that mentally? You know, was it, would it pull you down sometimes or were you just like, well, no, I'm going to prove you wrong? Yeah, definitely the latter. It was just looking at it as as a competition. I always looked at it as a competition. And I've always been a mentally, Craig, a distance runner. I'm not a sprinter. Hmm. So even though you might you might win the conversation today, because you could say to me, me and some kid my age might be going back and forth. And he says, well, look, you're practicing out here every day. You're not even on your high school team. You're not even playing on a local recreational league team, but you're practicing every day. So you're you're not doing anything. Uh, it's like a waste of time for you. And it's really nothing I can say back to that because on a logical side, he had all the all the facts, quote unquote, on his side. But I've always been thinking long term in the long run. 
I'm going to end up where I'm going to end up. Where is this guy going to end up? Not in the same place that I am. So I always looked at it that way, that in the big picture, I'm going to win. Even if I don't win the short race, I'm going to win the long race. And you no know, time ended up proving me correct. Yeah. So you've seen the world and you've played a lot of games of basketball now at, at a quite a high level. When you look back at your sporting career, is there, you know, what are you most proud of? The fact that I was able to make something out of nothing is the biggest thing. And because what that does, Craig, is even as an entrepreneur now working as, as a coach or in the thought leadership space or as a speaker is I can look at another person who's not even an athlete and hold them accountable and say to them, listen, you don't have the excuse of, well, this person's not helping me or I started kind of behind the eight ball or I started at zero and nobody's believing in me. Because when I when people hear about my background, they say, OK, well, this guy's legitimate. He knows what it feels like to be in the back of the room or at the end of the bench. He knows what that feels like. So for him to stand up on the stage and tell me something to hold me accountable, nobody can say I don't know what it feels like. I'm not just speaking from this anointed space that I was born in. I had to work my way up as an athlete. Also, I had to work my way up as an entrepreneur. It's not like somebody uh, put me on as an entrepreneur. I had to put myself on and I had to go make it happen. So. And it's something that I still do to this very day. So that the fact that I was able to make it as an athlete is a big part of my brand, even though I don't it's not like I give speeches about how to be a professional athlete. But the fact that I made it as an athlete and getting into that one percent of people who get to play a sport for a living gives me the credibility. It lends credibility to everything else I talk about, even if I'm not talking about sports. Hmm. So, you know, now being an entrepreneur, when you and you look at your sport and you look at, you know, the world of business, mm -hmm. is it the same or is it, or is it, are we playing a different game? It's both actually, Craig. So it's the same in that it's a performance culture and you got to go out there and you got to win the game every day, especially when you're talking about entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, we got to go out there. We got to win the game every day. Mm. It's not, you, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that you don't have a job tomorrow. Or no guarantee you're going to get money today if you don't do the job the way it is supposed to get done. So that's performance in that way. It's similar, but it's also very different in that the business world is extremely subjective and it's often based on people's feelings and opinions and personal perspectives. Whereas the sports world is based on an objective black and white arbiter called scoreboard. All right, it's mm -hmm. black and white. Whoever has more points wins the game. In business, it's never like that. Right? So I'm sure you as a, as a speaker, or as a podcaster, I'm sure you've been at conferences and you've uh, listened to shows and you're listening to somebody and they have a bigger audience than you, more fans than you. They might be getting paid more than you. You listen to them. You're like, how? Mm. <laughs> how is this possible? But in the sports world, that doesn't happen. Uh, the best performers usually end up on top in the sports world. Usually it shakes out the way it's supposed to in sports. In business, best is very subjective. It's all based on opinion. It's not based on any uh, black and white measures. So the business game is very different in that way. But you just and but. Another similarity is you have to learn how to play the game. Whatever game you're in, you got to respect that game. You have to respect that these are the rules and this is the way it works. You have to adjust yourself so that you can win the game as it is, not the way you wish it was. Mm. So back in the 2000s, you started writing and you started sharing your thoughts. You know, what what was the, I suppose, the genesis or the seed behind? You know, I want to get my thoughts out there, you know, like I've been through something. I figured something out. You know, I'm still going mm -hmm. in my career. What was, what drew you to putting pen to paper, so to speak? It was just about pen to mm -hmm. paper back then. 
uh, and getting things out when people weren't really blogging in this world? Uh, I had to give that credit, just the fact that I've always been a reader. So my mom's an educator. So she had my sister, who's a, a year older than me. She had both of us reading from a really young age. So I think that's where my uh, interest in reading and then in turn writing came in. And then I heard about blogging. That was like the first thing. Blogging was the first thing you could do on the internet and just put yourself out there. That was before what we now have as social media before that existed. So way back in the day, you had the the chats, like the AOL instant messengers and things like that. So you had that. And then you had blogging. And I remember I started a blog actually before I got on platforms like YouTube. Before YouTube even came out, I was blogging. And it was just because I always knew that I had some ideas and some ways of thinking and perspectives that were different than most people's. I knew that just from real life interaction with human beings that most people don't think the way that I think. And even if they do, they can't explain it. They can't articulate it the way that I could. So I always knew I wanted to get my thoughts out there some way, shape or form. So that's how I started blogging. Now, the blog never like got me a huge, massive audience, but that was literally the first thing I was doing online was blogging. Mm. And your thoughts that you were putting down then, are they consistent to what you're seeing now or has it evolved quite a lot? It's both. They're consistent in that my perspective and the fact that I look at things differently and I can put it into words still exists. But the things that I talk about now are completely different than what I was talking about uh, nearly 20 years ago. But the fact that I had a different perspective and that's my it's kind of my reason for existing in the marketplace. And I tell entrepreneurs who I talk to that we need to know what's your reason for existing. Like, Why should somebody do business with you? or pay you attention as opposed to all the other options they have that are similar to you. If you can't articulate that, then why are you here? Why are you even doing this? So I always knew that from the very beginning that I started, and I was saying something in a way that nobody else was saying. And if you look back at that, did you feel your intention was, um, you know, I want to just share my thoughts or was it more around, I want to help other people well, it started with sharing my thoughts. I just wanted to get my thoughts out there and see if other people could relate to it. So it was kind of like a, I'm going to put this out and let's see if other people get it the same way that I get it. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah. Social commentary is what it was. It wasn't really a, a help type of thing. Yeah. And so your drive for basketball, you know, I kind of get the feeling that there's, there's, no sh there's no difference in drive than what you have now, whether it be speaking or writing books or... Uh, or podcasting and or coaching would that be um you know is that drive that hunger still there oh absolutely 100 percent. and again the game is different but the drive and determination to succeed is still 100 percent there that's the reason why i get up every morning is to go out there and and win go out there and win the game and the competition back then was against other players and the scoreboard now the competition is you can look at other players. Really, the competition is uh, how can I maximize what I have? Because I got a lot of stuff that I want to achieve business-wise that haven't gotten to yet. So that's really the competition is racing against the clock because we don't have unlimited time to make these things happen. Mm. You know, the world is continually evolving. You know, For you, what are you seeing in regards to the way society is changing and maybe the way people approach life. Where do you see the biggest opportunities are for people to, to step up in this world and take advantage of the opportunities that are out there? Well, the biggest opportunity I think is still through 
somewhere it is going to be through the internet simply because the internet allows you to reach many people at at one time with mm -hmm. one message so you don't have to talk to people one by one there's opportunity in that still but you can reach a whole bunch of people at once through the internet and of course we have you know all the emergency technologies there's always going to be something new right now it's ai but there'll be something new after that and just the ability to communicate one to many is the biggest thing so that's a skill that everyone should develop because the opportunity to get your message out and create a return on investment for yourself and create a, a income for yourself revenue business opportunity for yourself is huge for the people who have the communication skill to get their message out to many people at once hmm. so when you're looking at your coaching you, you spend time with people how do you approach that like what sort of you know, everyone kind of has a bit of a philosophy or approach they go into when they're coaching someone mm -hmm. you know, when you see someone for the first time what's something that um how do, how do you approach that well when i come across someone for the first time usually they have been warmed up somehow some way by my message whether they've been in my audience for some time whether they heard me on uh, some platform that i was broadcasting whether they have been on my email list whatever it is they know about me and they kind of have a feel for my approach some more than others but everybody has a feel usually i never am speaking to somebody just straight cold ever so for me, our framework is based around four pillars, mindset, strategy, systems, and accountability. So those are the things that we focus on. And those are four things that I know from experience, every entrepreneur I work with needs some form of each one of them. Some of them may be weighted more than others, depending on their situation. But the only time somebody is even getting into coaching with us is we have a conversation first. So it's not like you just go to my website and pay money and now I'm your coach. Like there's a conversation that happens. So we have a really good feel of where you're at, what your challenges are and where you want to go. And we know that we can help because otherwise we won't take on a client. Mm. And so is it really just understanding that they're going to be coachable? Is that kind of the big thing that you're oh, looking 100%. for? Yeah. And that's one of the questions. Yeah. We ask that. <laughs> we ask them, we let them know if you're going to work with us, you must be coachable. And if there's any reason you can't be coachable, then uh, we can't move forward. And what would you see in people? Because some people don't always realize this, you know, for you, what sort of signs or can people kind of tell whether they're going to be coachable or not? Well, for us, we actually come out and we explicitly talk about it. Like if you're going to work with us and get success, we need you to be coachable. And we explain that means yeah, you, know, you need to be open to change, open to feedback, open to if we need to tear something apart that you've been doing, then we're going to do it. And if we need to add on something new that you've never done before, then we need you to be open to doing it because that's the whole purpose of coaching. The purpose of coaching is not for us to pat you on the back and have you do more of what you're already doing. It's to change some things because if you kept doing the same stuff, first of all, you don't need us. And secondly, that's not what you want because you came here because you're looking for something different. So we get very explicit and direct about that. Mm, I like that. It's, I think it's this fantastic approach. I, for in in regards to that coaching side of things, where do you think people struggle the most when it comes to that coaching relationship? You know, the people to really get effective change, and for someone like you, mm. driven by setting really high standards, uh, yeah. where do people struggle the most, and and why is it important for people to stay in that struggle? Where people struggle the most is getting out of their getting out of that inertia. So law of inertia states an object in motion shall remain in motion or not in motion. 
if not in motion, until it gets acted upon by an outside force. And most people just get stuck in that stagnation, not of activity, but mostly of the mind. Stagnation of the mind is the biggest challenge people have, and meaning they keep thinking the same way and not changing their way of thinking. And therefore, their actions don't change that much. And therefore, their results don't change. So it's really just breaking people out of their mental jails. And that starts with us breaking their false beliefs about what they thought was true. And now that we've created a vacuum because we deleted all the stuff they thought was true. Now there's empty space there. And now we can insert the stuff that actually works. Mm. What is an example like for you of someone you've worked with and like the change that you've achieved that you're like, well, even I didn't think I would be able to do that. Hmm. I don't think I've had one of those that I was surprised by ability to enact change. Because again, I don't take on a client unless I'm sure we can help them. So I know everybody I talk to, I know I can help, but I haven't surprised myself with any outcome. But there have been people who have had paradigm shifts that I've worked with simply because just in our conversations that we just talk about stuff and they say, man, that's a different way of thinking about it. I hadn't considered that. And this is one of the reasons why I got into coaching in the first place, Craig, is when I was putting material online. And I thought the stuff that I was sharing, just talking about mindset and things like that, you know, discipline and systems and structure and accountability. I thought everybody thought like that. I thought the way I was thinking was just a normal way of thinking. But mm-hmm. I realized through the responses that I was getting that what I was saying was new and innovative to a lot of people. And that's when I realized the value of what I was offering. So, uh, you know, as well as I do, that sometimes when you're in the, the consulting space, the uh, intellectual property spaces that we sometimes undervalue what we offer simply because we're so used to it that we it becomes normal to us so we think the stuff that we're saying is not even that exciting but other people who know nothing about it they hear it and they're like wow that's amazing i never thought about that yeah one of the things i find with coaching sometimes is a lot of people when you see coaches out there all they're trying to do is fix problems but Mm -hmm. there are certain people and uh, and a lot of us too, there'll be some sort of natural genius. I mean, you were talking about it there, things that we mm-hmm. do naturally, uh, we don't even recognize it. It comes easy to us, but other people find it absolutely fascinating. But I find it the art of a good coach is also to be able to unpack that genius for people so they understand why they do something so well. Like people go, yep, you do this, you do this. And they're like, yeah, that's great, but I don't actually know how I do it. That ability to unpack so they can apply it somewhere else. Is that something you do, you find as well? Absolutely. So a lot of the things that you get taught when you come into our program, which is called Work On Your Game University, you can apply. First of all, we make it clear we help people both with their personal and professional stuff. As I found as a coach that a lot of times people's challenges in business are related to something that's going on at home. Mm. Or something that's going on at home is related to something that's going on in business. So we don't draw any line between that. And people feel comfortable talking to me about their personal issues, whether it's um, a spouse thing, whether it's a kid's thing, whether it's something with the neighbors, whether it's a a coworker or a team member who they want to get rid of, but they can't quite fire them because of you know some kind of regulations and things like that. So a lot of times what I'm coaching people on has nothing to do with you know, black and white X's and O's and numbers. It can be interpersonal things and really just helping them understand how to communicate, how to go about things, how to not, not burn a bridge when it's not necessary. Like all of those things, I would say about a good 50 percent of what we do here deals with that kind of stuff, not just uh, the black and white, you know, make more money thing. 
Yeah, I always find it frustrating when people talk about work-life balance. I'm like, well, work is part of life, so you can't you can't right. separate <laughs> the two. They're part of like they're part of one, right? Um, mm. In the book, uh, work on your game, and in the work that you do there, you talk about four key things around discipline, confidence, mental toughness, and personal initiative. All right, so let's mm. let's dive into discipline. Mm. Right? Okay, from a discipline perspective. Why is that so hard for people to to remain disciplined and show up every day? A lot of people don't know how to create discipline because they go about it with what I call an inaccurate formula. An inaccurate formula is where people think they have the right idea what to do. And no matter how well they execute that idea, because it's the wrong idea, it doesn't work. So a lot of people have an inaccurate formula with discipline that they have to force feed themselves discipline and make themselves be disciplined. And then that'll produce the consistency and the, the systems and the processes and all they need for all of all the the uh, trappings of discipline. But it doesn't work that way. What actually works is that you have to put a structure in place that allows discipline to result from it. Mm. So structure creates discipline, in other words. And the way that you put that the way that you put that in place is you have to either create, excuse me, if you can, or you plug into what already exists as a structure that does produce discipline. So an example of that would be if someone's 20 pounds overweight and they've been trying to lose this weight for the last two years and they haven't been able to get it off, they could say, well, Dre, I need to be more disciplined. I just got to force myself to be more disciplined and get to the gym earlier and do more workouts and eat less donuts and stop drinking soda and then I'll be in shape. Well, yes, theoretically that's true, but does that work? No, because if that's all it took, then the entire health industry least over here in the United States wouldn't exist. So it's a $33 billion industry every year when the key is watch what you put in your mouth and do something with your body, right? And that's the whole industry, right? But people spend billions of dollars a year on it because the structure would be hiring a personal trainer who will tell you what time to come to the gym. He will give you a nutrition plan, tell you what you can eat and what you can't eat. And he will make sure that when you come to the gym, you are actually working out and doing something, not sitting on a machine looking at your phone, right? So all the key here is, the structure is in the form of the trainer or a coach or a mastermind group or you signing up for a course or getting into some program. That's the structure that many people don't have. And they fool themselves into believing that they just work on things on their own and things will work out. Well, you already been trying that. Right? Isn't that how we got to this point? You're doing things on your own. So that's the exact thing you don't need to be doing. So that's where a lot of people mess up with discipline. And it's interesting, like if I go back to your early days when you're playing basketball and you're trying to develop the skills so you can get better, etc. It sounded like you did a lot of that on your own. At what point mm -hmm. did you find you needed maybe a better structure so that you could be more, um, not just disciplined and turning up, like showing up every day, but showing up and developing the right skills every day? Well, the thing for me is, it's the way my brain has always worked. My brain works in structures. So anytime I'm doing something, I'm always thinking about how can I create a, a system out of this so that I can do the same thing the same way every time. And the other thing is the reason that I did self-teach myself for basketball is because I didn't have anybody around to get information from. Like I didn't have an option. If I had an option, I probably would have taken it. So for me, and what was your question there? The rest of the question? Uh, in regards to the... You know, did, yeah, did you need someone else around you to help you um, You take that discipline of not just turning up, but actually turning up and doing the right things? Oh, yeah. So as I learned more about basketball, 
and I got to get in touch with other people who knew the game better, then I started tapping in. So whenever I got a chance to tap into someone who knew more than I did, I did it. So even if that meant getting a workout online, printing it out on paper and taking it with me to the gym, because, again, this is before smartphones. So if I did that, then I was doing it. Or if I found another player who had some skill that I didn't have, but I wanted to develop it, I would ask them, hey, how do you, how do you do that? How do you do that move? Right? How do you develop that ability? And I would borrow whatever they took, whatever they gave me, and I would take it and I would go use it. So I've always been a sponge, Craig, in that I can soak up uh, knowledge and information and retain it and then go use it, repackage it and use it for my own purposes. So I've always been big on that. And then in sports, once I got to the point that I had the resources and the access to people, I did start hiring trainers and coaches and mm -hmm. people who could help me work on my game and get better outside of the stuff that I did on my own. But even when I did hire people, I never rested on, well, okay, the trainer will tell me what to do next. I still did my own stuff outside of working with the trainer. Yeah. So, I mean, for you, you've got a lot of self-discipline. You're able to structure things, put strategy in place. But for a lot of people, they don't always have that, right? They need that external voice or the external support to keep them disciplined, keep them motivated to provide that right. structure for them. And I see this a lot like in the corporate world now, like for leaders, there's so much information out there. They may be a sponge, they may read lots, but they don't know how to systemize that in a way and stay structured and focused on something. They're trying to they're trying to take everything in, trying to do everything, or they get overwhelmed and not do anything because they aren't able to systemize it and really focus in on choosing a path. You know, how can people do that more effectively, right? Because it's not just about reading more. It's not about watching more. I mean, if you look at it right now, there's so many messages out there, say from a leadership perspective, be an authentic leader, be a courageous leader, be a compassionate leader, be an empathetic leader. Uh, you need to be a um, strategic leader. You need to be a futuristic leader. And we all know you need to be all of those, but there's there's so much push to be one type of leader that it, it and there's so many different types of leaders that people either try and do everything mm. or they get overwhelmed by there's too much there. How do we how can someone who's not as systemized and as structured or self-disciplined be able to find a space where they can actually grow rather than be paralyzed? That's a really deep question and a good question. So are we talking about somebody who's in a leadership position or this yep. could be... We'll go leadership position right now. Okay. And they what they want to grow. And what was the last part of the question? They want to grow, but mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't have that natural ability to systemize, put a strategy in place to stay focused. They, they're either trying to do everything or they get overwhelmed mm -hmm. by all the information out there. How, how can they... What, what is a process or what is a way that they can kind of help themselves to put some system mm -hmm. or structure in place? No. Well, the easy answer is they need to hire a coach. <laughs> That's what they should do is hire a coach. Get some professional help on your side mm -hmm. to help you do the things that you're looking to do because this is your profession that you're investing in. You're investing in your ability to perform at a higher level in your business. So and every pro athlete has a coach or a trainer, usually both, every single sport, all of them. And many of the top entrepreneurs out there have some kind of coach or mentor. They're part of a mastermind group. They invest their money in something or someone that is going to help them, help them with their thinking, be a sounding board for them, be a place that they can uh, basically a listening ear who can hold space for them. They just want to vent or talk about something because the person in a leadership position often is a person who 
is least really listened to. Right? People listen to you because you're the boss, because you're in charge, because you're the check writer, but not listen to you just as a like as a friend, as a lending ear, as someone who you can just uh, share with and then help you with whatever you're dealing with. Usually the leader is a person who's helping everybody else. So uh, what I would suggest for those people who you just described is they should invest in a coach, someone who is able to supply them what they are usually supplying to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And rather than trying to just read more and consume more, they need to get focused and someone to help them do that. Right. Uh, we talked about discipline there before, but confidence, uh, you know, confidence is a big, there's an internal confidence, there's an external confidence in a way. Um, how can people start to to develop their confidence? You know, what is a way that people can start to take with it? You know, if they're lacking confidence, how can they start to build that? Well, confidence is defined as your belief in your ability to do something. And that's sourced from your discipline. Right? The more you show up every day and do the work, the more you build your belief in your ability to do it because you've been doing it. And the way someone can get confidence is, what I tell people is to borrow your confidence. So picture someone who's already at the highest level of what you're trying to do or they're already at the level that you're trying to get to. Ask yourself, how would that person show up? What kind of energy would that person have when they walk in the room? How do people perceive them? And do people want to follow that individual? If the answer are, answers are all favorable and yes, people will want to follow them, then what I suggest to people is you assume the posture and the energy of that person. Don't try to be them, but you assume their posture and energy. And when you step into that posture and energy, your actions will be infected by that mindset that you're in. That's why mindset is the foundation of everything that we do here, because the mindset controls how much of the skill set you get to access. Now, if you're not fully confident, you can't access all your skills. So the mindset opens the door to utilizing the skill set and how you use the skill set leads to the outcomes. So the biggest thing answering your question and wrapping this up is that you need to develop or step into the mindset of the person who already has what you want. And that could be the imaginary, uh, fully realized version of yourself, or it could be someone who's already out there, already exists. But you need to borrow that energy from somebody. You're not faking it. This is not fake it till you make it. You are actually becoming it. Because when you become it, that's not fake. Mm. The from, from a confidence perspective, one there is, yeah, you've got to have that internal confidence to you know to be the best in your ability but there's also that external confidence that you show other people um how can people improve their their confidence that they project to the world picture posture and this is something that i'll, I'll talk to my audience a lot about and when i say picture posture i mean both literally and metaphorically so literally shoulders back uh chin up chest out head up eyes up and make eye contact with people smile with people that is part of your posture and it does reflect in your confidence. The other part of your posture is the internal posture, which is who do you see when you look in the mirror? Uh, who's the person that you see? Do you see a leader? Do you see a person who is willing to be who other people are willing to follow? Do you see someone that other people will want to listen to? Are you carrying yourself in such a way that other people would want to go along with you? And do you have the do you have the the energy that makes people want to follow you? Do you believe in yourself? So to get into that confident space, the biggest thing for anyone, I would say, is check your posture and then make sure you're maintaining that posture because energy communicates to people much more than words. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. How you say it is much more important than what you say.
Mm-hmm. You can say something that doesn't really make any sense. But if you say it in a confident way, people will follow it just because you sound like you know what you're talking about. Because most people don't believe in themselves. So when you come along with some confidence, people will follow you because who else are going to follow? <laughs> Not themselves. Yeah. Now we're human and, and there are days where for whatever reason, our confidence is a little bit lower. So how do you deal in those situations where you might find your confidence is down a little bit than what you're used to? How do, what, what sort of uh, strategy do you put in place to pick yourself back up and put you back in that right state of mind? That's a good question, Craig. And I don't usually find myself too down on confidence because I've done so much work on myself to where it has become normal. But if my confidence was down, then I have resources at my fingertips literally at, at all times that can help me get right back into my right state. So I use the app called Evernote. You're familiar with Evernote? Mm-hmm. And with Evernote, I just keep a I keep folders, folders of all types of personal development things. So whether those are my goals, whether it's a list of things that I've already accomplished in life that I'm proud of, things that I am thankful for, whether it's a list of uh, mindset, things that will get me into the right frame of mind. So it might be a screenshot of a quote that somebody said or something I pulled out of a book or maybe something I said that I really like. And I'll put them all in the folder and anytime and even days when my confidence is feeling great. I will review that stuff and remind myself of it to keep myself in that frame of mind. So this is all part of what I call mental conditioning, because conditioning is not something you do one time, it's something you do over and over again. So you can stay in that that peak state, whether it's mentally or physically. Mm, I, I love that. I love that. I love that approach, uh, which is really, really good. You know, you stand on stages, you've talked on TEDx, you, you speak regularly uh, for you. What? What do you, what's your routine before you go on stage? What, what puts you in that peak state of mind to serve those that are in front of you? What I do before any time I'm going to get on the stage is, well, first of all, I love the act of performing. So getting on the stage and speaking is similar to playing in a basketball game. And before a game, I just want to get into that state where I'm not really thinking at all. Is kind of like letting the mind go blank. I would get athletes, you know, back in when I was in the basketball world a lot, athletes would often say to me, Dre, what should I be thinking when I get into the game? Because these athletes will sometimes get performance anxiety and they're wondering how they can perform at their best during the game. And I would say to them, I even made videos answering this question, in the game, you shouldn't be thinking at all. So you're asking the wrong question. So during the game, there should be no thinking because you already did the work. Mm -hmm. The work's already been done. All you're doing in the game is kind of letting it go. And whatever you have already practiced is going to come out automatically. It's going to come out naturally from you. So before I get on stage for a speech, I'm not thinking anything. I already know what I'm going to say. I already know what my performance is going to be. I have a framework in my speech. I don't know it word for word. Well, I do know it, but I don't plan on saying it word for word. I'm going to go off the energy of the crowd. Maybe somebody might say something, might get a question, a fire alarm might go off. Who knows? Something might happen in the middle of the speech, but I'm already prepared. I know what my framework is for uh, what I want to say and the point that I want to get across. So before I get on the stage, I'm just in a, a blank frame of mind. And I know that I'm stepping to the stage as an expert and that the people in the room, whether it's 10 people or a thousand, they have given their time and their attention because they could put it anywhere. They decide to put it on me for this next 45 minutes or two hours to hear what I have to say. And I assume the posture of that person who has a thousand people following him for the next hour. And I'm going to give them uh, their money's worth in time. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, I, yes, it's a great way to approach it. My dad always used to say, don't make it happen. Let it happen. Uh, when it came to game day, 
and it's about being able to let go. When people read your book, uh, work on your game, uh, what are they going to expect from that? What they're going to expect is they're going to get the entire work on your game philosophy from top to bottom, where it came from, why it is, and how exactly do you apply it. And mixed into that is me giving you some uh, stories from my life explaining why work on your game is what it is. So a lot of times, uh, sometimes in the thought leadership space, people will put out information. They'll tell you what the information is, but they don't give you the glue. The glue to the information is why am I the one talking about it? All right, why am I talking about discipline, confidence, and mental toughness and initiative? Anybody can talk about this stuff. Why am I talking about it? So when I put my story mixed in there, it's working on your game is not a memoir. It's a business book. But the reason I put my story in there is so that you understand why these elements matter to me. Why does this matter to me? Why, of all the things I could talk about, why am I talking about this? Well, let me tell you. This happened on the basketball court. This happened in my business. This happened when this happened. This happened in my life. That's why I talk about these things, because I have real life experience that led me to understanding the value of them. So that's what they're going to get from working on your game. Yeah. Inside that, it's, you know, who, who's the book for? Like for someone who's going to read it, who is the person mm -hmm. who's really going to benefit from it? Working your game is for the professional who is serious about personal and professional growth. This is not a person who is good just staying where they are and they're looking for something to uh, entertain them and feel good. This is a person who is looking to do more good and they want to perform at a higher level and they understand that to do so, that the game that they have right now is not sufficient, that they need to develop more game and they need to perform at a higher level so that they can produce higher level results, which lead to higher level rewards, all with the understanding that what we do here is not designed to make you feel good, but to help you do good. And if you happen to feel good in the process, that's fine, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to help you perform well, not necessarily to make you feel good in the process because getting out of your comfort zone usually doesn't feel that good. <laughs> at least not at first. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're doing all this great work. You, you write, you speak, you coach. Um, when you, know, you get to the end of your career, the end of your life, what will a feeling of fulfillment look like for you? What it will look like for me is that we may work on your game. A We want to make it a household name. We want to make it a household phrase. The same way that no Xerox for a copy machine or no Polaroid for a physical picture coming out of a camera. So we want work on your game to just be just a ubiquitous thing that people don't even know that there's some other version of personal professional development that is all just known as working on your game, right? So that's what we want to do with work on your game. Mm -hmm. You've talked a lot about setting structures, standards along the way here. For you, what are some mm -hmm. non-negotiables in your life? That I'll always be in professional athlete shape, regardless of whether I'm actually playing a sport or not. Uh, that I am always going to make sure my family is taken care of, no matter what I have to do to uh, do that that I'm always going to uh, carry myself in such a way that even if somebody doesn't know me, they're like, I don't know who that guy is, but he's he's somebody, right? That just by seeing my seeing my posture and my aura and my energy, that this, that guy's somebody, even though I don't know him, who is he? So I those are non-negotiables for me. And those are things that I even tell people, you need to know what your, your principles are. What are your standards? What are your non-negotiables? What are the things that are absolutely there's no way that you can go against the grain with these things. And no matter what you need to do, even if it makes you uncomfortable, you will live up to those standards. Mm, great approach to life.
Well, you know, smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Last time I did something for the first time? Hmm. I'm trying to think. I'm just thinking through this year. First time. Something I did for the first time this year was... Hmm. That's a good question. I'm thinking about that one. I mean, there's a lot of little things. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's what you're looking for. But one thing I can think of is I was in a, a hot dog eating contest. But that was about 10 years ago. So I had to have done something new since then. Hot <laughs> <laughs> dog eating contest. Is it something you'd do again? Oh, no, it didn't go too well. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do too well in that contest. <laughs> you've got a you've got a one year old uh, baby who's you just had a first birthday. That that's got to be something pretty big as well. Yeah, well, I'm throwing him a birthday party. He'll have a birthday party on uh, a couple of days from when we're recording this. Yeah, exciting, exciting times. What's the one question that you would love to solve? The one question I would love to solve. Hmm. One question I would love to solve is, you know, I, I kind of address these things a lot myself and I, I answer them. But I think for the wider population, the question is, why do people not change? I have a very strong idea why they don't change, a very strong opinion on it. But I think most people don't know why most people don't change. But so if I could just give something to society, it'd be that. All right. Well, now you've uh, kind of opened that loop. Yeah, you share with us. Why don't you think people change? Well, first of all, the law of inertia that is easier to stay the same than it is to change. So it's easier, whatever position somebody's in, it's easier for them to stay in that position than to do something different. That's, and that's a law. It's a scientific law. So it's that, that right there could be the whole answer. But another reason is in order for people to change, they have to step out of their comfort zone. They have to do something different than what they're used to doing. And most people will talk about doing something different. But when it comes time to actually doing something different, they don't want to do it because it makes them very uncomfortable to step out of that zone of what they've been doing to step out of their habits. And human beings are creatures of habit. It's much easier to stick to your habit than it is to do something different because it feels so awkward to do something other than what you've been doing for the last 20 years. So most people would rather just keep doing the same thing, even though consciously, logically, they're saying they want to do something they want to do B. It's much easier. The pull of A is much stronger because you've been doing this thing, the same stuff for the last 20 years. But now somebody's been talking about doing something different for two hours. All right, what's stronger, 20 years or two hours? All right, the, the 20 years is always going to win. So this is why a lot of people don't change, even though they have every conscious intention of changing. When it comes time to actually changing, it's very difficult to do because the pull of their accumulated experience is much stronger than this little bit of you no know, inspiration or motivation, whatever you want to call it, that they just got from a podcast or a book that they read or some conversation they had with a salesperson. It's very hard to get people you know, out, off of that square where they've always been. Mm, love it. Love it. Uh, for you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you? Mm. Inspiring great leader is a person whose actions and words and energy moves other people to step themselves up to a higher level. And a person I would give as an example, someone who I look to, I would look at somebody like Michael Jordan. Let's say him, uh, greatest basketball player of all time. And just his his mentality, his approach is the reason why he was as great as he was, because he had standards. He had certain 
uh, non-negotiables for himself. That's the reason why he was so great as a player. Yes, he was skilled and yes, he had talent, but a lot of players have skill and talent. And the difference between MJ's skill and the skill of the people he beat was negligible. It wasn't that he was just so much better than everybody. That's not the reason why he won. Mm. He won because he had certain standards that he held himself and everybody in his circle to, and everyone lived up to those standards. That's the reason why he won. So that mindset, anybody can apply that in anything they do, even if you never picked up a ball or played a sport. Beautiful. Uh, it's been fascinating to speak with you today, Dre. Uh, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? People learn more about what I do by going to work on your game, university.com. That's where we do all our programs, our coaching, everything is under one umbrella, work on your game university. And the best way to reach me is I'm on every social media platform. Yeah, everything is out there. I'm on it. So whichever one you like the most, just type my name in. I'm there. I'm probably most active every day on Instagram just because I use the Instagram stories a lot. And my Instagram is just my name, at Dre Baldwin. But I'm on every other platform, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, now X, YouTube, Facebook, everything. Yeah, it's good. Get it out there. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I, I love kind of diving into your formative years when you're kind of you're you're not quite there right you're having to work hard you're having to develop that discipline the toughness the resilience to pick yourself up when you know everyone else seems to be ahead of you but you keep striving you keep putting those standards in place and you had that that vision to be be something to be good at a sport and to really keep going when others would have stepped away and found another path or found an easier way to get on in life to understanding mm -hmm. your approach to work on your game and that importance of people to have discipline, to develop their confidence, have mental toughness and create personal initiative to take chances in life. You, you've certainly taken a chance on your life. You know, even when other people were doubting you or maybe even question you, even your mum and dad may not have thought that being a pro basketball was the right way to go. You turned up, you showed up and you were able to persevere to get to a level that maybe your natural physical talent wasn't suited to but mentally you were able to take it to a whole nother level and i think that's important for people to grasp right it's not always about mm -hmm. the the physical presence you may have it's all about that mental side the mental tenacity that you can create and that belief that you have to be able to achieve something in life i love the work that you're doing i'm fascinated by your approaches and I look forward to uh, completing reading your book. I've read little bits of it. So I'm looking forward to reading the whole book. Uh, so thank you very much for your time today and all the incredible work you do in this world. Well, thank you for having me on, Craig. I appreciate you sharing your platform. I'm looking forward to hearing feedback from your audience. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.